Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Greetings and welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm your host, Carl Truman. I teach at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania, where it is currently snowing at the end of April. I'm here, as always, with my long-standing friend, my only friend, uh, my pal Todd Pruitt, who is pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg in the great state of Virginia. It is a state, not a commonwealth. Is that it right, is a Tom? state, although every once in a while when we're feeling a little arrogant, we'll, we'll refer to ourselves as the commonwealth. The commonwealth. We're a commonwealth in Pennsylvania, of course. Uh, well, it's great to be here, Todd, of course. Good to see you. Uh, so, yeah, good to see you too. Yeah, Todd yeah. is a pastor in the PCA, so he's beginning to get that annual depression as he moves <laughs> towards the General Assembly. As General yeah. Assembly's coming up, you know, just All kind of wondering. Of craziness will happen. And right. uh, what can one say? The PCA is not far from the kingdom of God. It's not Every, the OPC. Exactly. It's not far from the kingdom of God. Yeah. Talking if, of, one of, well, one of the things you told me years ago, Carl, was that um, as I was lamenting some of the, some of the goofiness, that goes on in the PCA from time to time. You know, you said, well, listen, you know, we we have crazy people in the OPC, but I, I just prefer our crazy people to your crazy people. So <laughs> I, I, I suppose maybe I'm there too. So you know. there's something to be said for craziness you can understand as opposed to right. craziness you can't yeah, understand. Yeah. My wife and I were in Providence, Rhode Island last weekend. I was speaking at uh um providence college on saturday their veritas mm -hmm. conference on on friendship and we were staying in a hotel with rusty reno from first things and fran mayor friend from first things and there was some kind of kink drag queen conference on in town and they were staying at our hotel that's so craziness that i can't understand that's I'm so glad that happened to you it it reminded me of that time you took Karen away for the romantic weekend and found yourself yeah. in the middle of the furry convention. Yes, yes, that, yeah, Washington, D.C. I'm standing with my wife in an elevator next to an elk. Uh -huh, <laughs> I uh -huh. that was a yeah, yeah. I, I pull into the uh, parking lot of our hotel in Washington, D.C., and I all of a sudden, I, at first, I think, what are the, you know, is, is, it, is, is it college game day somewhere? Because I'm looking at what I think are mascots until I realize, oh, no. I've read about these people and and they were by the hundreds um walking all around and I and so I had to immediately start texting you pictures because oh, yeah. I, I thought I, Carl will enjoy this. Well, I have to say your suffering and disappointment brought me endless entertainment yeah. that day. Well, and I laughed and laughed at each picture. But yeah, anyway, well. we have a guest today. <laughs> Talking of which Talking of craziness that I do understand, uh, we have a friend today uh, from the Southern Baptist Convention. It's always good to interview a man who I think is balder than I am. Uh, it is a good friend of Ask, repeat guest on the show, uh, and a, a rising voice among Protestants making the case for natural law ethics have said repeatedly in class and on this show that one of the big needs in protestantism at the moment is deeper more profound reflection 
upon ethics because the big challenges in some ways we're facing in our churches today are not the traditional challenges of you know denial of the resurrection scriptural authority those are pretty easy to spot and in some ways relatively straightforward to answer many of the questions pressing on us today are questions connecting to ethics and morality whether we're talking fertility treatments sexuality the big questions a lot of pastors are facing are not theological directly they're ethical and so it's a great pleasure to introduce my friend uh, professor andrew walker andrew is associate professor of christian ethics at the southern baptist theological seminary He's also one of the uh, kingpins at World Opinions, where I myself write uh, a column uh, a couple of times a year. Uh, he's formerly, I think, Andrew, am I right in saying, of the Heritage Foundation in DC? Formerly, yeah. Uh, and he's editor of a new book, Social Conservatism for the Common Good, a Protestant engagement with Robert P. George, foreword by Ben Sass. Mm -hmm. The authors, as I look at the list of authors, which include modesty i have to say this i'm in there <laughs> in the book yeah absolutely it's like a list of the few friends i have on the face of the planet it's a great <laughs> book from that perspective and andrew and i are both privileged to counter robbie george not only i would <clears> say as a friend which is a privilege in itself mm -hmm. but also as a mentor yeah somebody who shaped the way we think now robbie is a devout roman catholic but he has had a profound effect on a rising generation of Protestant thinkers. And this book is a reflection of that. This book is exclusively Protestant in terms of those who write it, except for the, the contributions of Professor George itself, and a testament to how uh, Robbie's thought and indeed his personality or approach right. or ethos right. is shaping the way the church in general and even the Protestant church think about these things. So Andrew, great to have you on the program. No, hey, great to be with you both. And and uh, I, I have to say here two things. Uh, Carl is uh, a dear friend of, of mine. Uh, Todd, I hope to become better friends with you. But I also did notice that the segue to introduce me was drag queens and furries. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I don't know what that's revealing about how you think of me, Carl. Uh, but but you know it's on it's on brand given yeah. the stuff that I write about. Well, so I will I would just say that those two subjects are just frequent topics of discussion for Carl and I. So I mean, at any given moment, it's likely we're going to be talking about drag queens and furries. And so yeah. I mean, no, I do too all the time. So it's okay. <laughs> So, Andrew, it's uh, I mean, I was honored to be invited to contribute to the book. Uh, I gather from chatting to Robbie and from the reports I've had from you that Robbie himself uh, considers it one of the few books uh, where the pe people who actually understand what he's saying yeah. have hmm. written about him. What gave you the idea to do this? I think it's a great idea. Kudos to Crossway for publishing yeah. it. What gave you the idea? So, uh, I mean, I have to go back to the genesis of kind of where I began with my introduction to Robbie George. And that is what I think was around 2007. I came across this book of his called A Clash of Orthodoxies. And honestly, I don't know how I came across the book, but I did. I began reading it. And I was this evangelical kid at the time. I would have been probably 20 or 21 and reading uh, incredibly powerful arguments that completely aligned with my Christian worldview but these weren't arguments that had Bible verses attached at the end of the sentences. And so obviously, you know, in, in hindsight, 
I was learning uh, how to argue from the natural law tradition of what, you know, Robbie obviously does. But when you're, you know, a, a teenage kid growing up in evangelical circles, uh, you know, this is where this is where big uh, intellectual ideas begin to have consequence, uh, where, you know, the natural law tradition was basically lost in Protestant circles for a good chunk of the 20th century. And so I'm I'm bearing witness to that fact. But I, I come across this book in 2007 and I'm blown away at what I'm reading, uh, that begins kind of uh, following who this figure is in articles that he had been written, he had been writing. And then in 2009, this uh, profile of him comes out in the New York Times uh, called the Conservative Christian Big Thinker. And the New York Times, I'll never forget, they refer to him as like the greatest living social conservative thinker alive. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's that's a that's a significant statement. And I think that even kind of catapulted me into more interest because I, you know, we all have our interests intellectually. Uh, my intellectual interests would be related to those categories of social conservatism. And so I was immediately drawn more and more into the work of Robbie George. Uh, and then, you know, getting into his kind of broader intellectual relational network with friends like Ryan Anderson, who who Carl and I work with at EPPC, uh, and it kind of spiraled or snowballed from there. Uh, but the genesis of the book itself really began in December of 19, when I was sitting in my office at Southern Seminary, and I noticed on one of my bookshelves, um, I had like a whole uh, row of books just by Robbie George. Hmm. And I just was thinking to myself, you know, of, of living thinkers, uh, there are you know several that have profoundly impacted me, but I, I just admittedly, he's the first amongst equals of those that have impacted my own worldview. And I thought, you know, I think that his work needs to be translated even more than it already was to an evangelical audience. And and, and you know, in in Protestant intellectual circles, Robbie George is a known commodity. Mm-hmm. But if you begin to think about who Robbie George is, if, if he's known by evangelical lay people, he's not. Uh, and so as, as Carl mentioned, I think the need of the hour are these moral issues, these public theological issues. And so I thought, you know, what would it look like to synthesize his work into one volume that would be both a festschrift, so we're, we are trying to honor him, but it is more than your traditional festschrift. Uh, I really am trying to make a dent as in, in kind of the evangelical intellectual landscape with showing uh, the relevance and profoundness of his work uh, for, for Protestant evangelicals as we think more about these issues of, of social ethics uh, and particularly on those issues where it's the most controversial life, definition of male and female, issues of marriage. Uh, and so I just thought, man, this this has to be done. And, you know, I'm 38 and I still have a long career ahead of me, but I can tell you already, this is one of the, the, the works I'm most proud of in my career so far that I think could actually have some, some staying power that, that shows maybe I, in, in 30 to 50 years from now, this book is looked back on as um, kind of an intellectual revolution or intellectual awakening for Protestants kind of coming of age, so to speak. And how we engage these issues yeah those issues you talk about they are pressing pastoral issues these are not abstract political things anybody who teaches in a college or anybody who is a pastor of a church 
is confronted with questions about fertility, sexuality, gender on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, and we and we joke about like the drag queen story hour stuff, and it is absurd and ridiculous. Uh, but like you know, in this discussion, in kind of a First Amendment uh, situation like America, we have these conversations around goods, moral goods, and constitutional rights, and we have to figure out how to, uh, you know, when do rights yield to certain goods and goods goods yield to certain rights, and Robbie's framework. Uh, it's actually super helpful that I think we 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 should embrace more of and to, and to say that there are actual moments where no matter how much you like your free speech and your freedom of assembly, uh, if there are demonstrable moral harms, uh, we have to be able to demonstrate what those are in kind of the language of of the lingua franca, right? Like it's never less than scriptural, but you have to be able to explain in a public forum why men dressed up as women is actually dangerous mm -hmm. to the common good. Uh, and, and that assumes that there may be people in that conversation who don't believe in scripture. Uh, but, you know, as the natural law tradition teaches that we do have some moral consensus, more, some moral common denominator. And I think that's why Robbie's work is very helpful on that front. You know, two peculiar things always stand out to me about Robert George. And one is the fact that he is not nearly as, as angry and pessimistic as I think he ought to be. And <laughs> then the, the uh, other thing is that why in the world has he not been chased out of Princeton yet? In all seriousness, as I think about other people, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's not a secret. You know, he makes no secret about where he stands on these issues. He's extremely articulate and has been for years. Yeah. I'm amazed that he's been able to find a home you know, at, well, at, at Princeton. I, I think that's definitely the glories of tenure. Yes. Uh, I think that's the the fact that, you know, in, in, in intellectual and in public intellectual life in America, he's definitely one of the most famous public intellectuals. Mm -hmm. If you go after Robbie George, you're going to pay, I think some, some social cost, even if you're Princeton mm -hmm. with yeah. getting a media attention. Uh, but I also think that if Robbie were here, I think he would tell you that after he retires, there probably is a glass ceiling over future mm. Robbie George's getting hired. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to give names or institutions, but there are people in the Robbie George network yeah. who are absolutely brilliant, who are much younger than him, who had, I think, and they would say have had glass ceilings placed over their heads because, and I'm talking at, at our most elite institutions yeah. in America. And they would tell you that, you know, they, they might have been final, they might have been final candidate, uh, finalist for mm -hmm. positions as, as candidates, but they didn't get the position. And they think that, well, it's because we know we're known as stalwart social conservatives because we've been birthed out of the Robbie George network. Mm -hmm. So I think we do have to have some real politique to know. Mm -hmm. I think that the chances of there being another Robbie George at Princeton are, are few. But I think if Robbie, if his, if his public charisma teaches us anything it's that you keep making the the arguments regardless of what the consequences are and you let the cards fall as they do yeah, yeah. i was very struck in my year at princeton we would the fellows the madison fellows would get together once a week for coffee and donuts and uh yeah most weeks something crazy had happened somewhere there was some loony progressive policy being pushed either at princeton or somewhere else in the country and i was very struck at you know, Robbie would come in and would say, okay, this has happened. 
Uh, and his his response was not, you know, okay, let's throw bricks through windows and get really annoyed about this. His response was this, so how are we going to respond? Yeah. What are we going to do that is a creative and persuasive response to this thing? And although you were saying before the show that he considers me to be far too pessimistic, <laughs> uh, he should meet some of my pals. You know? but, uh, I, I, I think I am less pessimistic than I was before yeah. I met him. Uh, he, he certainly has that effect. And he is, uh, like I think our friend Ryan Anderson, uh, I think I've seen Ryan described as the most cheerful culture warrior there is. Yeah. Uh, these are not men marked by anger and bitterness. They're yeah. men marked by a cheerful humanity, yeah. a humanitarianism that shapes how, not, not simply what they say, but how they say it. Well, and, you know, that gets into, um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to uh, do the book that I did was that you can't separate the effectiveness of Robbie George as a thinker from Robbie George, both the institution builder, but then also Robbie George uh, in terms of his character and his demeanor. And I don't want to use the stupid word winsome because that's been overused and it means a thousand different things to a thousand different people. But one of the things you notice about Robbie George is that um, he's indefatigably cheerful and uh, he has to be reckoned with intellectually. And so people may be aghast at the positions that he that he holds, but he has to be taken seriously at, at an intellectual level. And uh, you, you, people might dislike him personally even, but, you know, I would not want to square off with him <laughs> in, in a formal debate simply because of both the prowess of his intellect and the fact that, you know, he's incredibly charming and winsome. I just said that I just said the dreaded <laughs> word as I, as I as I tried to censor myself. Uh, but th th this gets to the fact that there are before you have the intellectual arguments, there have to be almost intellectual virtues that surround the conversation. They, are, are you a disagreeable person? Are you mm -hmm. able to entertain uh, competing worldviews and, and and understand them and not be fragile. And so I think in many ways, I mean, goodness, fragility is just the currency of our day. And in many ways, he he represents both a joyful anti-fragility. Mm. And I think we need we need more of that. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking <clears throat> more broadly about social conservatism, um, I'm old enough to remember, I think I was in eighth grade. Uh, the the 1980 presidential election where Rinaldus Maximus Reaganus was uh, uh, ascended the uh, the the throne and um, and there was much rejoicing in my home among my parents I remember it well and but I also remember that as divided as things were in the nation at that time doesn't hold a candle yeah to how we're divided now and and the other thing is that I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that is as divided as we were. I think one of the reasons why it was not as <clears throat> maybe violent and vitriolic at that time is that so much of the debates politically um, had to do with things like economic policy and taxation, um, things that, you know, we can have serious disagreements on for sure, yeah. but, but where we would also sort of instinctively understand that even Christians of good conscience can disagree on some of those kinds of issues. And so the vitriol oftentimes only reached a certain level because 
very often we knew we weren't in some of those debates um, talking about good versus evil. We were generally talking about, oh, a good idea versus a bad idea or or that that type of thing. That's changed a lot now <clears throat> where when we're talking about things like abortion and abortion was a big issue in 1980, but it became an increasingly bigger issue as time went on. Um, but, you know, I, I can't think of a single Democrat in 1980 who would have um, hung out a flag. Right publicly right prominently on the lgbtq issue and 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 so now i think a lot of us on the social conservative side are saying you know the nature of the debate has changed because the things that we're debating has changed so much yeah no so um amen to everything you just said you know i'm not sure if you saw clips of this going around social media but um tucker carlson gave this speech yes. at the Heritage foundation oh, yeah. gala yeah. and Regardless of whatever you think of Tucker Carlson, I know that he says some things that are not always always defensible, but he, he gave an incredible speech and he was making this same exact point. Hmm. That we're no longer debating tax policy, right? Yeah. We're debating what is created reality itself. And one of the things that I'm constantly teaching uh, to my students is, you know, if you look at American society today, and, and this ought to be a vindication for the relevance of social conservatism, but if, if you look at um, American society today, like we are so unhealthy as far as our suicidal ideation, uh, we're not marrying between abortion, uh, between not being able to define what is a male and a female. And of course, our, our society is going through, uh, um, you know, a death rattle of sorts in this in this moment. And I think what we're seeing here is, you know, if you look at Genesis one and two, kind of the lineaments of creation order, what do you have? You have uh, at least three categories I can think of. <clears throat> you have the necessity of of life. You have uh, the necessity of male and female being being static, concrete identities. And then you have the presence of marriage. And I think from marriage, uh, culture formation. And, and what has our culture done right now? Well, we have abortion, we have transgenderism, we have we have gay marriage. Uh, and what do we see as a result of that? Uh, a failure to launch at a, at a cultural productivity level, as far as our people just being utterly miserable and that we are, our society is not giving us or affording us the abilities uh, to attach to the necessary institutions for us to thrive. Uh, if we're telling people that your life is dispensable, if we're telling young children, chop off body parts if you want, and then we're telling people, you know, use your body parts in whatever outlet you want to put your body parts and delay or throw off uh, the the order of marriage. I mean, it's no shock and surprise of of the disarray that we're in. And so, you know, I, I am confronted with, you know, these these news stories about how Gen Z is more socially progressive and, and, you know, we're all dead if, if you're a social conservative demographically, so to speak. And I just don't care, quite frankly, mm -hmm. um, because if, if truth is truth, truth must be witnessed to regardless of the circumstances, right. regardless of the consequences. And I tell all my students that, you know, everyone wants to change the world, right? That's the moniker of our age. Get out and do something, change the world. Literally, the best way you can do that right now is to defend those pillars from creation order and Genesis 1 and 2. 
Yeah. So far from these being issues that we should run from and be afraid of, you should run toward them and proudly defend them. And I think, again, that's that's one of the reasons I think that the book that I've done here is important is it's providing that intellectual seedbed to help Protestants think critically about those issues mm-hmm. uh, and to arm us with the tools necessary to engage uh, the world uh, around those topics. Yeah. You know, um, Andrew, our, our famous friend, Carl Truman um, has, uh, has some well-known books and actually, and I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to say this in front of Carl because it's only going to make him feel really good about himself, but go on, say um, it, please. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm teaching it's a Sunday a school. Day. Yeah. I'm teaching a Sunday school class right now. Um, and we're using the curriculum that Crossway produced for Carl, your book, Strange New World, and um, and have about 200 adults in that Sunday school class. And one of the things, uh, we just finished chapter seven this last week, every single week so far in the discussion time, we come back to the first two chapters of Genesis. We go back to the first two chapters of Genesis, and we go to Romans chapter two. Yep. In terms of God writing his law upon the, the the consciences, even of the Gentiles, even of those without the law. And part of the point I make each week is that it is precisely the point you made. We keep speaking the truth in one, because it's truth and you should speak it win, lose or whatever. The other thing, though, is that we have to remember, and I say this as, a, as an encouragement to these folks each week, is that the people you're talking to have the law of God written on their heart and they have a God haunted conscience. Um, and so when you speak the truth to them and particularly when you're competent in doing that, um, God can use that to, to, to irritate that conscience, mm-hmm. um, to agitate their conscience in the best way. Um, and so b- because, you know, go, and this goes back to natural law. These are things we can't not know. We we can't not know um, about what homosexuality does to the body, um, about transgenderism, um, about abortion, these kinds of things. And so we speak the truth, not only because it's the truth, but because also um, God has made the truth powerful. You know, we and I'm not the the person who's coined this term. I, I think it was Francis Schaeffer, but this notion of borrowed capital that the world yeah. Yes, eyes upon kind of the Christian moral ecosystem, Mm -hmm. even though if it wants to reject Christianity. And I find myself just going back to this argument over and over and over again. And um, I was just recently uh, reacquainted with this exchange with Tom Holland, who's the the skeptical agnostic. He he, he might be an atheist, but British historian. And he he gets asked, how should Christians relate in this kind of post-Christian secularizing culture? And it's a weird question to ask a a secularist. Mm -hmm. And um, he gives an incredible answer. And he says, well, you know, one of the things that I would stress if I were a Christian is that you don't get Western civilization, the things that we take for granted, like rights, forgiveness, rule of law, apart from the Christian moral ecosystem. And then he literally goes on to say this, and I could not believe this. He says, you know, it takes just as much faith to believe in human rights. Yes. It does the resurrection. Right. (laughs) And so you've got this secular guy making that statement and you're like, oh my gosh. Yes. Um, So if, if you're going to like human rights, why not try out the resurrection as well? And then the Christian worldview comes along and says, well, these are not just disjointed realities. 
they're all they're all yeah. uniformly united under this idea of of God's goodness, God's right. sovereignty. Uh, and so, again, I think these are um, as as society prays uh, more and more at the margins. This is where I think we have more of an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to Carl's points, we may go down with the ship, but we should go down with the ship trying at least, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and 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 while trying to exhibit, I think the necessary intellectual virtues in doing so. And so these are hard times, no doubt about it. They're also exciting times uh, for Christians to have to figure out, like, what does it mean to bear witness in a society that is losing all pretense in many yeah. ways, trying to be Christian. And so uh, I just hope that this book is is one uh, meager contribution to the conversation. And uh, in fact, I think since the last time I was on this podcast, uh, I've got another book off to the publisher uh, on, it's called Faithful Reason, uh, Natural Law oh, okay. for God's good. Glory and Our Good. So hope, I'm trying to continue down this, uh, this, this stream of producing materials that can help Christians understand mm-hmm. Uh, not only the truthfulness of our um, our our worldview, but the profound goodness that yeah. in, inheres within it as well. Yeah, one of the things that Carl and I have talked about in the past is just th- how th- these current days have pressed Protestants into catching up on um, the whole issue of natural law, remembering our heritage. There, I mean, we, you know, we're heirs of of the early church fathers. Um, we, we we need a doctrine of the body. Uh, we need a good understanding of the place of natural law, and this is these days have been pressing us into doing that, and that's um, and that's a good thing. And it's interesting, you know, you mentioned Tom Holland. I I heard Tom Holland give just this great, and maybe we're talking about the same talk, but where he talked about human rights in metaphysical terms. Yeah, and he was absolutely right about that. And and as we talk to people on these issues, and they want to invoke. Um, rights, um, you know that that can be an entree to them to, to in our conversation to talk about. Um, well, where do you where do you get these notions of rights? It's you know Holland talks about what an odd, weird thing it is to come up with the idea of human rights. And so, uh, again, uh, uh, let's part of the thing that that Christians have to do is to be really well informed so that we're ready to give a an answer for the hope that we have and um Andrew thanks for for being on with us today um I want to encourage our listeners to go to uh, our website mortificationofspin.org and you can enter to win a copy of uh, this really wonderful book that um Andrew has edited social conservatism for the common good a protestant engagement with robert p george and it is excellent i'm almost done with it i've been enjoying it in the evenings and uh, uh i i just i second everything that andrew has said about robert george and what a treasure he is uh, and should be for protestants um, in the way that he knows how to engage both effectively and with a sense of of Christian humility as well, and may we do the same also. So please visit our website for that. If you're if you're inclined, you can uh, make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, so that they can continue to uh, produce some good content for you. And until next time, we'll look forward to being with you again on Mortification of Spin.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Thank you.